at this time of the year, we like to air a lot of our best of episodes. And one that didn't make it over as we changed our platform was one from four years ago with Brian Kite and what he did with us in his first season of the leadership journey. And we curated clips that really put together the idea of how do you build culture. As you sit and think about what you're going to do for the next season, how you're going to build your position group, your unit, your team, I think a lot of these ideas are going to be helpful to help you think about culture and leadership and how you're going to get the most out of your group as you prepare for and work through this upcoming offseason. Enjoy. What you see on tape is a direct reflection of what you teach and how you teach. Video is important, but if you don't teach well, you're not going to like what you see on your video. First Down Playbook has been helping coaches teach better for 13 years. It allows you to present installs, playbooks, and practice cards in half the time with NFL quality. Coaching tools like video pairing, a player app, practice schedules, and wristband sheets have made First Down Playbook a program management system with everything in one place. If you're in a position of leadership with your football program, receive a free one-week look at First Down Playbook. Call them at 512-814-6158 or visit them on their website or social media. Mention Coach and Coordinator Podcast or use the coupon code COACH24 to receive a $100 discount off the normal $700 First Down Playbook team membership price. Links and the phone number are in the show notes. As coaches, we know that some of the biggest hurdles to our team's success can come from off the field. Your team needs support to tackle the endless list of expenses, uniforms, training equipment, travel, and more. But raising that money can feel like a full-time job. Thankfully, there's Vertical Raise. Vertical Raise is the premier online fundraising platform using innovative technology to create the easiest and most efficient system available. Raise more money in less time with a local fundraising coach who works with your team every step of the way to customize the ideal fundraiser. With options for online donations, digital discount cards, premium product sales, and even spirit shops, Vertical Raise has top-of-the-line solutions for every fundraising style. To find out more, visit verticalraise.com and we'll get you connected with an exclusive offer on your first fundraiser. Today's podcast is a best of and we focus on season one of the leadership journey with Brian Kite. Brian shared a lot of great stuff with us, but I went back through these and I'll tell you, it was difficult to pick out the clips to use. There was so much here that uh, really I think you can learn from, that I learned from, um, but here we're going to share some different clips from Brian, some very impactful things that he talked to us about on season one of the leadership journey. The first concept here he talked about was energy. This was in episode one that we did, his first episode of doing the leadership journey with us, and he talked about how you have to create your own energy as a coach. So let's listen into what BK has to say about energy. And it's you hit it on the head. It's it's the differentiating factor of greatness when it comes to coaching. I mean, the 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 great coaches are the coaches that know how to move the human heart, not in a fuzzy way. I mean, reinvigorate that human heart who know how to bring that out of people and then how to actually teach that. That scheme is pretty common. Um, so is intelligence for that matter. You know, I, I do encounter this a lot as well. 
if you think you're going to win because you're so much smarter than your competitors, like, I promise you, you're not, I promise you're not, you could be a smart guy, but you can even be a smart lady, but the gap between you and everybody else, like it's just a relatively small gap between a highest IQ and the lowest IQ. So we can't rely on intelligence. We have to be able to create our energy. The first thing is this. The first thing is you have to understand, and I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk, I guess, two fronts for coaches and then for athletes, because the first thing is a coach has to create his own energy. You've you got to create your own energy as a coach. You can't be reliant on your staff or your players or anybody else. You've got to know how to bring that out in yourself, especially with, I think of all the things as a coach that are competing for your energy. Like I'll, I'll, I'll put it in, in three things, actually. There's three things that are, are resources you have to determine where they go as a coach. And there's more competing for these three things today than ever before in the coaching profession. And that is time, attention, and energy. The number of things competing to take your time, the number of things competing for your attention, and the number of things competing for your energy, those resources have to be strategically deployed. You have to choose where does your time go and what's it go into, where does it not be really disciplined about that. Be disciplined about where your attention goes. What do you pay attention to? What do you ignore? That one's tricky because there's some things coaches don't want to pay attention to, but they might need to pay attention to. And there's other things coaches want to pay attention to. They probably ought not to be paying attention to. And there's a lot, you know, maybe that's a whole other topic because that is pretty big. And the last piece is energy. What do you put energy into? What do you not? So, when you look at, at the resources and, and where they go, focusing on energy, the, the first thing you got to understand is that you have the capacity to create whatever energy you want and however much of it you want inside of you. It, it's actually, there's been a lot of discussion. You talk about the scientific studies and scientific research. There's been a lot of studies recently over the last decade, meaning uh, about energy as a fixed resource. And that was a popular belief for a long time. And it turned out it isn't. It turns out that energy can be created, and I'm not going to say limitless, but I'll say this. You have the ability to create as much energy as you need, probably way more than you personally believe. Or how you coach, uh, how you stick with an athlete who might be resistant, your job on top of coaching, if you have one on top of it as a teacher, or you, you, you work in industry somewhere for yourself as a, as a dad as a husband, as a son, as a community member, all the different things, there's this huge source of energy. But in order to have that energy right, in order to have that uh, energy be fulfilled, it has to be focused energy. Alignment is a huge part of having a winning culture. And BK talks about how alignment happens with three things, clarity, support, and accountability. There's, there's, a, there's a fundamental principle across all of life about why it has to be that way because that's not unique to football. Every one of our, our business clients, all the way up to our, you know, our clients, you know, Fortune 100 and global organizations, the same principle applies. In school districts, the same principle applies. And here's why. In a world of increasing complexity, simplicity wins because simplicity executes. What is simple can be executed. What is complex is actually the enemy of execution. And that applies in culture and alignment more so than any other issue. I mean, look, alignment is fundamentally a culture issue, not a strategy issue. 
strategy is incredibly common. Culture is incredibly rare. So when you're talking about messaging, messaging, again, make sure we understand, go back to what we just said. Messaging is mostly words. Words are, are certainly an entry point or a supporting point. But what needs to happen is the messaging needs to be simple so that the feeling of attitude and the action you're observing is easy to evaluate. If it's complex, it's hard to do. If it's hard to do, it's hard to observe. And if it's hard to observe, you, you, you can't track it. So keeping it simple is what allows you to put the culture on the table in a really clear way. And, and this is what it comes down to, Keith. It comes down to this. If you want alignment, it comes down to doing three things. How do you actually create alignment? You do it through three ways. You, you do it through clarity, you do it through support, and you do it through accountability. Let's keep it simple right now. If you want alignment, make it clear, support them by training them and teaching them how to do what you were clear about, and then hold them accountable by paying attention to what they do and acting on what you see them actually engage in. So if I look at, at why, why alignment doesn't happen, generally speaking, it happens for one of three reasons, and, it, and they follow clarity, support, and accountability. Alignment doesn't happen on a team in the human system or the athletic system. One, because it either wasn't clear, they didn't understand from the start, it wasn't clarified, or too many things were communicated and they had to filter themselves and you don't know what they filtered on. So having three simple messages as opposed to 10 helps with clarity because now all of a sudden, I don't need you to memorize 10, I need you to know three simple ones. The second reason that, that alignment doesn't happen is that they didn't get the support they needed in order to align with you. They weren't taught, they weren't trained well enough, they didn't get the coaching required, they didn't have the tools or the resources to do what you were clear about. So if you assume clarity, the second question is, are they supportive enough? Do they have all of the tools, training, resources, and coaching required? Or the reason they're not aligned is because they weren't held accountable. And accountability is really important to redefine right now. I want to I take accountability back, and this is what we do in our organization. I, I learned this from my dad 15-plus, 20-plus years ago, and it, it, it moved me then, and I've you know, spent the last 20 years of my life trying to redefine accountability for everybody that we talk to. Accountability, guys, we have to stop treating it as punishment. This next segment is about trust. BK points out that trust is three-dimensional. It comes from character, competence, and connection. Let's hear what he has to say about trust in this next segment. And trust is three-dimensional. Here's where trust comes from. Trust comes from the unique combination of how people experience your character, your competence, and your connection. And I, and I, I said that specifically. Trust comes from how other people experience your character, your competence, and your connection. Trust isn't generated by the character you have, the competence you have, and the connection that you think you have with people, how much you, you care about people. Trust comes from whether other people have an experience of your character they trust in whether other people have an experience of your competence they trust in, and whether other people have an experience of connection from you that they trust in. A lot of people, including coaches, 
make the mistake of thinking that the character they have and feel on the inside, other people need to just recognize that. Or the competence they have because they've been coaching the game for 15 years, other people need to recognize that. Well, newsflash, coaching for 15 years doesn't make you competent. And it doesn't earn trust. There's a lot of people who've been coaching the game for 15 years, and they're still just not very good. That's not a, that's just an observation. It's not a criticism. It's not unique to football. There's people who've been in plenty of professions who've been in it for 15 years. They have a lot of experience, but they haven't gotten much better over those 15 years. So there's just not a relationship between the years you've spent coaching and how good you actually are. And people watch that. People have learned. So if you want trust from people, you have to know how to deliver an experience of character deserving of trust. How to deliver an experience of being competent that's deserving of trust. And like we talked on last week's episode, how to deliver an experience of connection that is deserving of trust. Too many people, Keith, believe if they're a good person and they know the sport, that's enough to be trusted. It isn't. You have to have all three. Trust is three-dimensional. There's no such thing as two-thirds trust. In this next segment, we talked about stress and adversity. BK talks about how important it is to practice the emotions and practice building mental strength that you can't wait till it happens. You have to have a system for that and you have to prepare beforehand. And he talks about how the elite are able to do this by being able to practice these situations and having a simple system for how they will approach adversity. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and I'll, I'll close with this and, and we can wrap up. I'll, I'll just close with this, Keith. I, I have a Navy SEAL who works for my company. Uh, his name is Scott Daly, lives in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, he's a tremendous guy. Uh, I, I love him dearly. And I appreciate the world that they operate in, not because we are Navy SEALs or we want to mimic their world. And I think too many coaches try to do that personally. This is my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, what I am interested in is I'm interested in the practices of the elite. Okay. And in any, in any environment, I don't care if you're a banker or a Navy seal or an Olympian, if you're elite and you have something that works, I want to learn something from you. And so Navy seals spend as much, if not more time studying and practicing and training their emotions as any other activity that they do. And I'll tell you this, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. You will never have real discipline in your life until you have real discipline in your mind and in your heart. You, you never have true freedom in your life until you have true freedom in your emotions. The person who's trapped by that, that default voice in their head, it, they're not free. They're a prisoner of their own impulses or habits or need for what's comfortable for them. The person who chooses to build discipline and pay attention to that disciplined voice and build it up in their head, that person's free. That person is a creator of their own intention and their own skill. 
you know, we, we, we talk about it to compete and win. You build physical strength and speed and endurance and flexibility and skill. So for you as both a person and a coach to perform at elite levels and to win at elite levels, you need to build mental strength and mental speed and mental endurance, mental flexibility and mental skill, both in how you process emotions and how you handle stress because neither one of those things are going away. As we've been going through some of our best of series here on culture and how different coaches build culture, the thing you will hear again and again is the importance of relationships. And relationships really are about connection. BK talks about four things that make a connection in this next segment. Care, listen, communicate, and adjust your style. There's a lot of great pointers here. Let's take a listen. And so from a connection perspective, Keith, let me, let me share just a couple, a couple structures that I think will help the listeners in the audience. If you want to connect with people, do four things and I'll, I'll just put them in order. And I already mentioned number one, the first thing to do is care, choose, and then demonstrate it. Number two is you have to listen really carefully. If you care, that puts you in a position to listen and find out the people Find out where the people you're leading, find out where they are. I don't mean like where they are physically, but find out where they are mentally, emotionally. Uh, find out where they are in terms of their interest level. Find out where they are in terms of their uh, motivation level. Care first, listen second. Third is communicate. Why does caring and listening come before communication? Here's why. Caring and listening position you to communicate a message that will actually get through. And if you've cared and you've listened, you can now target your message that you're communicating better because you understand the people better and you can actually craft that message in a way they're likely to hear. So number one is caring and listening opens people up to hearing what you have to say. Number two, caring and listening educates you on how to communicate your messages. So as you care, listen, and communicate, the fourth thing you'll need to do in order to connect with people is you're going to have to adjust your style. It's not a new principle. I believe it was Thomas Jefferson that said in matters of principle, stand like a rock in matters of style, swim with the current. I think he's absolutely right. Don't let style get in the way. Everybody has wildly different styles. You and I don't even have the same style. We, right. we, we talk frequently. We have different styles. Mm -hmm. if, I, if, I, if I looked at your style as a character issue and I let your style get in the way because it didn't match mine, you could do the same thing back to me. And next thing you know, what would we be arguing over? Some people like to talk more. Some people like to talk less. Some people uh, are process-oriented. Some people don't care about process at all. Some people want a lot of emotional content. Some people want no emotional content. Some people are really interactive. Other people are super independent. Don't get hung up on style. Let people use their style. Just make sure that you're connecting with them. And so when it comes to how to connect, the rule is adjust towards the other person's style. If they want to talk a little bit more, meet them halfway. If they want to talk a little bit less, maybe calm it down a little bit. It took me a long time to learn this one. A long time to learn this one. I was too rigid in my style for a long time. And I had to learn how and when to adjust my style to interact with and connect better with not only people who didn't have my style, 
but also with people who do have my style, because sometimes the biggest disconnection, I, I, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. I think sometimes the biggest disconnection can happen with people who have the same exact styles, but don't necessarily see eye to eye on the strategy or the approach. I think we see a lot today where humility is an undervalued and underused characteristic, but it's really necessary for any coach, any person to have long-term success. And so in this next segment, BK talks about why humility is a core principle in football. Maybe this is a great spot to start digging into the specifics of humility because I would say that, I don't know, maybe if you, if you were to whittle down the five, the one, five of the core principles that the sport of football has revolved around since the game has been introduced, you know, I, I think humility would probably be one of those five. It would be on the Mount Rushmore, uh, uh, although I think there's only four faces on Mount Rushmore. It would be, it would be one of the core pillars of, of this sport of you know, teaching you humility. And unfortunately, what happens with things like that, things like teamwork, things like humility, things like um, uh, fighting through adversity, different things like that that have been phrases, sayings, principles that have been talked about a lot is we grow tired of hearing them long before we've gotten good at them. Does that make sense? Yes. So humility, I think, falls into that category. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I could, I could make a case that it, it, it's only increased, or, or I should say humility has decreased and the challenge of it has increased um, in the ESPN era and then the Twitter era and the Instagram era. But it would all be a lie. I mean, that, that would all be excuses that we would make for things that have always been qualities of human beings. Just read any text that's older than 100 years or 500 years or 1,000 years, and they didn't have the internet or Instagram, and humility was always a problem, always. It was always a fight. It's built into human DNA to you know, serve the ego that's just been around for a really long time. So here's what I'd like to introduce, Keith. I'd like to introduce a, a new way of thinking about and talking about and then evaluating humility. And I'd like to add another word in front of it. And here's the, first, here's the phrase I'd like to introduce, functional humility. Because there's a difference between conceptual humility and functional humility. Conceptual humility, football coaches, football teams, and the sport of football has down. That's where you talk about humility. That's where you do a good speech on humility. That's where you have a nice Instagram post on humility. That's where, that's where the, the things you say in front of parents and boosters and staff, that's that, that, that talk about it, humility, always around. And, and football does fine with that. We need no more of that. Where the sport is lacking is in functional humility. Now, what's functional humility? That is, it's humility in action. Humility that I can watch and see and observe. Conceptual humility says, yeah, I know I'm not the best at managing my emotions, but then it never actually tries to get better at them and makes excuses when things don't go well and you mismanage your emotions or just acknowledges, oh, yeah, I mismanaged my emotions in that game and then never gets any better. 
functional humility says, I'm not good enough at that, and I need to be better because if I'm not good enough at that, it's going to damage me or this team or our ability to win when it really counts. And then it does the work to get better. Conceptual humility just talks about it. Functional humility does something about it. Now, what to do about it, you know, there's a lot of different options. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But the difference between the concept of humility and the concrete humility required, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. And maybe just today because press conferences are out there a lot, and coaches are, are front-facing media, you know, I think we just see it more often and, and or we ask coaches to talk about it more often. And so coaches will trot out a lot of the lines. Right? They'll, they'll say a lot of the things, but then behind closed doors or when you watch the actions, you just see a lot less functional humility and you see a lot more conceptual humility. So that's the first thing I would ask everyone listening to evaluate is to what extent is humility a concept and to what extent is humility a concrete practice in your life and in your coaching and in your relationships? Because that, that's the real question for all of us is how concrete am I making it and how functional of a skill is humility for me as a coach and as a person. I've always been interested in the use of technology to make our jobs more effective. So I'm excited to continue sharing modern football technology with you here on the podcast. This innovative system leverages tendencies to improve self-scouting, game planning, and in-game decision-making at the speed of the game. Modern football stands out because it's a battle-tested platform used by teams at all levels, like four-time national champion Bishop Gorman, the five-time California state champion Folsom Bulldogs, six-time Texas state champion Lake Travis, Cal football, and the CFL's Grey Cup champions, the Montreal Alouettes. So book a demo today to see why these teams trust modern football technology. Visit www teammofo.com slash demo and mention coaching coordinator podcast or use the coupon code CC10 to receive 10% off your first year. This next segment deals with distraction and really with focus. And so BK talks about how important it is for us to train young people and to train ourselves to be able to, to be able to focus and be able to process distractions. And he shares his three tips for processing distractions. I actually think there's a mandate. I actually think there's a requirement to train athletes on focus and train athletes on how to deal with the distractions that exist that goes above and beyond just winning games or being competitive, but actually goes to teaching young people about life and also showing them how to be safe on the football field with distractions is again, talking clarity. I think we have to show people that the most distracting thing in the world is your own mind. That's the most distracting thing in the entire world. The external only provides the triggers. The external only provides the potential things. And I think part of talking about our world today is that there's more opportunities for our mind to go on to things because, yes, we're getting messages on our phones and we're getting messages on our watches and our different things. And then there's what? There's distractions, like we've talked about, everywhere around. And those are all things that have the opportunity to capture some of our mind, right? So what this really is, is a get your mind right skill. This is about controlling three things. 
distraction. This is not about stopping the external world. Look, if you can minimize your external world to keep you in an environment that you're not flooded with stuff to process, okay, help yourself out. But also you want your team to be real. You want your team to live lives. So you're not going to knock everything out and live in a bubble. So here's what this is about. This is about processing three things. What are you focused on? What are you saying to yourself in your head? And what emotion are you tapping into? That's what processing distraction is all about. Where is your focus? And what that is about is this. What deserves my attention? What deserves space in my mind? Second is what do I tell myself about the thing that has space in my mind? How do I talk to myself? The third is how does that make me feel? Not in a fluffy way, but how does that make me feel? What emotion does it trigger? What energy does it bring about inside me? And is that energy that is moving me in a direction I need to be moving? So with distractions, clarity and distractions. First is the clarity. Where do you want the focus? Where do you want the self-talk? Where do you want the emotion? That's clarity. Distraction is when it pops up, where does your focus go? Where does your self-talk go? And where do your emotions go? So let's take, you mentioned homecoming. Great example. Is homecoming something that coaches and players listening ought to enjoy? If you listen to BK at all, you know that E plus R equals O is a big part of his system for personal success and for building a culture. It has to be simple. It has to be something that everybody can link into. So he shares his formula for success in E plus R equals O and talks about examples of using that when adversity hits. And he gives some examples of training as well as how to put pressure on some variable moments in training. So when I'm teaching E plus R equals O to a team or to coaches, or I'm talking about it on this podcast, here's something I understand. The way that I handle E plus R equals O in a good moment is training me for a skill set I'm going to need in a bad moment. All of the daily, boring, apparently not that important disciplines I am building into my habits are training for that week of adversity that I'm going to hit where nothing goes right and everyone is upset with me and nobody wants to follow me where I'm going to need a certain level of skill that if I haven't trained myself before the adversity hit, it's too late to train myself when the adversity hits and rise to the occasion. It's really hard to be training people for adversity just by putting them into hard situations. There's a belief that if you just put people in adversity, they get better at it. And I'm going to tell you right now, they don't. Like just putting people in adversity does not make them better at it. It just ingrains a certain something into them that something may be very average so you know i you know people you know the, the military type training is really popular right now right. in a lot of different places where they you know make them you know do the bear crawls and go through sand and they you know coaches think they're navy seals and replicate that with them thinking that just putting your players through that makes them better it doesn't like that doesn't make them better what makes them better is if you train them in a system put them into adversity, they do or don't apply skills that they were trained in, you step back from that exercise, talk about how they executed their skills, and then you put them back into the exercise again and ask them to do it better than they did last time. That is the process of skill building and training. But just running them, making them crawl through sand, making them you know, flip tires, 
That's just work. Everybody does that. That's the minimum requirement. So here's, here's something a coach can do. When you have a system, say E plus R equals O, and, and I, I just say that one because it, it's the one that's the easiest and simplest to grab a hold of right away. How your players handle practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday mentally is training them for how they're going to handle a three-minute stretch of the game on Friday. Not theoretically, practically. The level of attention that they give on a Thursday afternoon and then the consequences and the pressure that they feel at that moment is training their minds and their emotions and their muscles on how they're actually going to respond when that sudden change adversity of a turnover hits uh, on Friday night deep into the fourth quarter where they throw an interception that goes back for a pick six and the team has 75 seconds to score a touchdown. Otherwise, they lose the game to the biggest rival. When that moment shows up, what you did on Tuesday afternoon mattered. And what you did on the five Tuesdays before that and all the days in between there mattered. So every situation that you are in as a coach is mental and emotional training for some future situation that you don't know when it's going to arrive. So this is something that you have to have a constant pressure on. And this is why culture is so important is you have to be putting that kind of pressure with variable moments, variable moments, meaning who knows when it's actually going to show up onto your athletes. You have to be talking about and holding the standard of discipline constantly on the team so that now all of a sudden it's a way of life. It's, it's uh, not autopilot, but it's automatic. Those are, those are different. And then the second thing I would, I would do if I'm a, if I'm a coach besides talking about, you know, E plus R equals O and, and getting them to, you know, be ready for events is I'm putting them under as much uh, chaotic, high pressure, real stakes scenarios as I possibly can. And I'm transferring around that pressure from a group of people to an individual, from a group of different group of people to another individual while I'm on the team so that groups feel a collective pressure to work together under adversity, where when things get hard, they, they can't get it done unless they all work together. And then other times where the majority of that adversity, if not all of it, is really focused down on one person. And you know, in, in sports, yeah, I think you see videos a lot where, you know, the, and I, I think teams do this, the kicker has to make the field goal at the end of practice, you know, otherwise everybody has to, you know, run a gasser or whatever it is. And, mm-hmm. and there's fun stuff like about that. But as much as you can start replicating that in other areas of your practice and you can start to figure out who does what under adversity and in what ways do they need to train better to handle what it is that adversity brings to the table. In this next segment, we talk about the performance pathway and what is the performance pathway? Well, basically that is your pathway in which your culture and your leadership of your program are going to be installed and you're going to start seeing the results of it. And so BK talks about why it's going to take two years to change a culture. And, and, and I, and I try to be, I try to make sure that I'm, I'm really practical with everybody, you know, business leaders, we're having the same conversation with, and they, they want to know when it's going to turn around, you know, because they're trying to, you know, they're trying to minimize risk or they're trying to improve safety in a, in a dangerous work environment. And we're literally talking about, you know, saving lives or, or people not getting injured, you know, and then other businesses, obviously, we're, we're trying to make sure, help them be profitable and they want to make money. 
and we're talking about something like culture and behavior and attitude and discipline, we're not talking about increasing the price of a product. You know, we're not talking in football about, you know, about um, getting a defense to, you know, uh, um, improve uh, uh, their, you know, their uh, uh, third down um, conversion percentage, you know, from giving up 40% third down conversion to 22% and what that does for the team. We're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about things like attitude. We're talking about things like belief. We're talking about things like perseverance. We're talking about things like mental toughness, these words that we use. And then we don't understand what the causal flow sometimes is and how long that takes because here's, here's how it works, why I say two years. I'm not just making it up. The first thing you have to do is you got to put people in a system for changing belief, changing attitude. They need to be in that system long enough for that to happen, and we need to take a proper view, a realistic view of how long it takes for that thing to change and for a person to genuinely change a belief, to genuinely change an attitude, to genuinely change a behavior pattern, like you're looking at six months of work to really put that in place. Would you agree? Like you're going to need six months of really good work for an attitude, belief, and behavior pattern to really start to shift and change in a, in a, in a way that you can observe, watch, and track. Would you, would you be on the same page with that? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I've seen it okay. actually. I'm, I'm, you know, watching uh, throughout the course of the year here in Ohio. Uh, you know, Maslin, the Maslin Tigers, and and what they're doing. And I know Coach Nate Moore comes in after two years of of back to back state championships, and he comes in and, and his first year is kind of dismal, you know, uh, as as far as a record goes. Uh, but now in year two, uh, they really got it rolling. They're playing in the state semifinal this week, and you know, mm. I, I follow him on Facebook and just see that uh, they have the culture going the right way and they, they have a community yeah. behind them now. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. So the first thing is it's going to take about six months to really change a belief, attitude, and behavior pattern. Then how long is it going to take for that established belief, attitude, and behavior pattern to get good? Okay, it's one thing just to shift it. But now we're going to move from, okay, now you have it. Now I need you to what? Now I need the skill to rise to be good enough to what? Go compete with it. Now you have to be in the competitive environment long enough for that competitive skill set to start producing. Now you need the production to be in place long enough for it to show up on a measurable scoreboard. So look at what we're doing. Look at the timeline this takes. I need the time to get it established. I need the time to get it good. I need the time to put it into the competitive arena. Then I need it to be in the competitive arena long enough for it to start showing up on the scoreboards we're actually measuring. That doesn't happen as a collective. With one person, you know, the timeline might be shorter, but we're not talking about a one person environment here. We're talking about a 50, 60, 70, 100 person environment where everybody is changing at different scales and different timelines, and there's lots of other social pressures. That just doesn't happen in less than two years, partly because of the fact of that the skills aren't in the environment to show up on the scoreboard long enough. The same thing happens for a business. I, I tell businesses the same thing. You need people to give people the time to shift their attitudes. You need them to time to get better. They need to, the time to go out and practice those new skill sets in work environments. 
then you need the business cycles to be in place long enough to, for those new skill sets to show up on the, you know, the, the end of the quarter, end of the year spreadsheets where you're actually measuring your finances against. And you're trying to measure the effectiveness of a culture workshop in six months. It's impossible. It, that literally can't happen because human beings don't operate like that, let alone 100 human beings or 1,000 or 5,000 human beings inside of an environment or a school district. You need a two-year time frame to really measure the effectiveness of this. And here's the kicker, Keith. It takes two years, two years, if you are really good at it. And I don't mean that as a, as a discouragement. I mean that as being dead honest about this. It takes two years if you're really good at it. If you're not really good at it, or if your skill set isn't quite where it needs to be, or if other people around you are doing leadership, culture, and behavior better than you are, independent of talent and resources. If the people around you, your competitors, are doing this better, it's going to take even longer. And in today's football world, what I appreciate is you don't have two years to waste, do you? No, you don't. You do not. So do not get caught in the trap of thinking you have to make this happen faster than that. You don't. You can get it done in two years, but you don't have time to spare. Our last segment here focuses on accountability, and BK gives a great definition of, of what accountability is and how we need to teach that to our teams, that we need to redefine accountability, and really it's about two things, rewarding alignment and creating discomfort from misalignment. Let's listen to what BK has to say in this segment about accountability. And maybe it will, maybe it won't be punitive. You know, that depends right. on context which right. we'll get to. But at a minimum, here's what coaches need to do. And well, this is why it's so dangerous. Coaches need to redefine accountability for their staff, themselves, and their team. They have to redefine it. Observe and act. This is in the virtual training that we teach, and we go really deep into this in the Leave Now system. But for here, we need to redefine accountability on our teams. And the reason we need to do it is because at this point of 2017, almost going into 2018 now, you say the word accountability and you are triggering the very resistance that you're trying to prevent. Exactly. Because if you say the word accountability today, people are not lining up to say, oh, give me more of that. <laughs> Here's the simple portion of what we need to do. You need to reward for alignment, and you need to create discomfort for misalignment. Okay? You need to reward for alignment, observe, and act. If you observe them doing what they're supposed to do and you observe them doing it at a really high level, reward for aligning with the standards. Reward for getting other people to align with the standards. If, on the other hand, you observe and they don't align and you watch that they are not doing things up to the standard, then you need to create discomfort for the level or amount of misalignment that that person or player is engaging in. So there's two different simple forms that accountability takes. The reward of aligning, that's a great form of accountability, and then the discomfort of misaligning. And that's another great form of accountability. If you only do one of them, you're missing the skill of accountability. You're 50%. So with those two things in mind, I use the words reward and discomfort. 
And those two things both have scales, right? So, you know, you go back and look at observe and act. The level or intensity of the action you engage in needs to depend on what it is that you actually observe. If you're observing something that is on a scale from one to 10, a one level of misalignment, don't take level nine action against it. You got to match that, which I'll talk in a second. But how you reward someone is different depending on who they are. Thank you again for listening to the Coach and Coordinator Podcast. We'll have more of these best of episodes from some of our recent series like Accelerate Everything and The Passing Lab. We have some state champions who will be joining us and statistical leaders from the college level to help you learn more about all the different aspects of offense, defense, and special teams. And also some guests talking about helping you get your next job and things you need to do to be organized and prepare for that. So stay tuned and make sure you go to coachandcoordinator.com to sign up for our weekly tip sheet, which will give you the rundown of all the ideas shared each week.